Welcome back to Civil Action with Brian Kabadek and Shant Karnikian. Today, Shant, we're going to cover some interesting cases that involve personal injury and tort claims. Uh, we are recording this in the middle of the COVID-19 shutdown, stay-at-home order, freeze order, and um, permanent jail sentence. So how are you doing, John? If you hear dogs barking or Brian making a drink with his blender or something, you know, we apologize. I do not have a blender in my home office, Sean, despite what you and your friends may think. Uh, so today we have, well, first of all, we're trying to do this set up by uh, a topic by topic basis. We've gotten some feedback and we've listened. Uh, so today is kind of back to torts, uh, back to law school torts class in first year. I think all, all four of the cases we're going to cover today are hugely interesting, very instructive. And uh, every time we do this, we learn a little something about the law. So, well, I learn a little something and Shant learns a big something. A lot. Yeah. Uh, so we have four cases today. Uh, the first one we're going to cover involves the substantial factor element of uh, torts. Uh, then we're going to cover a case that has to do with the primary assumption of risk doctrine and defense to tort liability. Then we're going to talk about the going and coming rule and an exception to the going and coming rule called the work spawn, doctor, uh, work spawn risk exception. Uh, and lastly, we're going to talk about immunity for police officers that are engaged in a high-speed pursuit. So super interesting set of topics that come up all the time if you're doing this type of practice, actually. And I think important in being a lawyer who evaluates cases, all of us do that in our practices. We evaluate whether or not to take a case or reject the case based upon the chances of likelihood and success. And when I was a, a very young lawyer, someone taught me, you're looking for liability damages and a deep pocket uh, to determine whether or not to take a case. And what we're talking about today is generally the liability issues, the legal issues that can make a great case a really bad case quickly. So, Sean, let's go to our first case today which is Union Pacific Railroad versus Amron Pull Products. Um, really, two, cross, two defendants who have cross complaints against each other in a case comes out of the um, third appellate district out of the county of YOLO. You know what that stands for, Sean? You only live once, Brian. You only live once, YOLO. Right. And in this case, the facts are fairly simple. Uh, uh, the plaintiff is a driver. The plaintiff in the underlying case was someone who was driving, who seems innocent and free of any fault. And she was rear-ended by an employee of Union Pacific Railroad, whose name was? Brian. Right. So not me. Just go on the record right now as saying it wasn't me who rear-ended this person. person you don't Pacific as much as you like trains, but yeah. Right. That's, that's, a, that's not true. I'm not a train guy. But... Uh, I took a train once. It was fun. Yeah. So, so the Union Pacific employee re-rends the plaintiff. Plaintiff veers off the road as a result of that collision and crashes into a light pole that was manufactured by Amron Pole Products. And this is a pole that's supposed to immediately break off, snap off, and reduce the force that the car has to uh, take. And it didn't here. It didn't snap off. Um, and this caused uh, injuries, serious injuries to the uh, plaintiff. Right. And so what this involved, though, was a summary judgment motion brought by Amron claiming that it had absolutely no liability or responsibility for the injuries of the plaintiff. 
and the summary judgment motion was brought against both the plaintiff and against the railroad. Um, and the trial court granted summary judgment and threw uh, Amarin out of the case, right? Yeah. Yeah. And um, here the inquiry is as to the causation element of torts. Well, what are the elements of torts, Brian, if you remember? Duty, breach, causation, and damages. That's the four elements of any negligence tort. Negligence tort. Negligence is duty, breach, causation, and damages. And here we're not so much interested in, in damages because we know that the plaintiff suffered substantial damages in this case. Instead, what are we focused on, Sean? Causation. And the issue here, in a nutshell, is Amron argued, okay, she hit our pole. And okay, our pole was supposed to shear off and not and, and lessen the impact to the car, but it makes no difference because this person would have been hurt anyways, would have been injured anyways. And uh, that's really the, the, the crux of this is whether or not uh, there was causation as to Amaron. And they rely on language actually from the Witkin practice guide on this issue that says, if the accident would have happened anyway, whether the defendant was negligent or not, then his or her negligence was not a cause in fact. So you don't have causation. Is that That's the language. And, and that, that's what they misconstrue. And right. the court right. kind of catches them on that and says that's and, not. And the first thing the court looks at is what do you got to show? You got to show that there was a breach of a duty and proximate cause. So we get past duty fairly quickly and we look at causation, a causal link. And that um, the court looked at cases where there had already been a initial fact which caused an accident, but the other defendant's liability made it worse. Isn't that really the crux of what we're talking about? That's really what it is. Yeah. The other defendant here, the other defendant being the pole manufacturer, made the injury worse. So when you have two distinct causes of uh, different injuries, then you can have liability against both of those defendants. Uh, the uh, pole manufacturer here relied on two two separate cases where the courts had said, no, you, you, you don't have liability against the second person because the injury would have happened anyway. And this court distinguishes those and says, yeah, but those involved a single set of injuries caused by two different potential tortfeasors. And they look at who actually set the chain of events into action. The, the analogy that I kind of thought of for this is if, if I push someone and they fall and they hit their head on, on let's say, concrete and then they crack their head open um, – they can't go after the concrete manufacturer because they didn't they didn't do anything wrong there. The, the injury was going to get caused no matter what. Um, but if I push someone, let's say I'm in a moving bus or a train, um, I push someone against the door and they get hurt, but then the door opens and they fall out and they die. That is a separate, distinct injury. So they can have a claim against me for pushing them. And then they can have a claim for the door manufacturer or the train operator for the door opening and dying. So you have uh, and I think that a really good analogy, Sean. I think that that's, that's a good analogy of the situation here. And of course, what Amron was arguing in this case is that the fact that the door malfunction and the person went out the door is of no consequence. It doesn't make any difference. In fact, Amron even went so far as to not argue that the pole wasn't defective. That's a double negative. But they, I guess they conceded that the pole was defective. They were just taking the position, so, so what? And the Court of Appeals said that Amaron misses the point, as I agree they do. 
It's not that they caused the injury. It's that they made the injury worse. Isn't that what we're really talking about? Yeah. Yeah. The injury would have happened anyways. Um, and the light pole just made it worse. Now, this is summary judgment, and the jury could certainly come to a different conclusion, and Amron could argue in a jury trial that their pole shearing off made no difference. Otherwise, she would have hit a tree, and it, the result would have been the same, et cetera, et cetera. Um, however, here, they reversed, and they sent it back. Now, there's one last issue about this case, a little throwaway that I thought was really interesting, and that's that in the beginning of explaining this case, um, I, I don't know if I mentioned, but the plaintiff never filed the appeal. Only the railroad filed the appeal. And the issue that the Court of Appeal wrestled with was how far does this reversal go, right? Right, because the case was the plaintiff's case against the pole manufacturer was also thrown out. Um, and this was just between the cross complaint for indemnity that the railroad had filed against the pole manufacturer. And ultimately, the court says, um, it's so in, it's inextricably intertwined that we need to reverse as to the plaintiff's complaint being thrown out as well. Right. So they could have said, no, we're only reversing it as to the cross complaint, uh, Union Pacific versus Amaron. And here they said, no, we're reversing this to the whole. But the lesson is the cautionary tale is be careful when you do that. Yeah, because that's risky right there to sit by and go, well, I hope they I hope they reverse for us, too. I mean, maybe there was some understanding that they would, but the, the fact that the court wrestled with it shows that there was a, a very high risk that uh, the plaintiff could have been kind of... Uh, I think the fact that we spend so much time talking about each one of these cases just show what kind of, you know, law geeks we really are. Um, but they're all fascinating. The next one is Gordon versus Arc Manufacturing, Inc. And this case um, involved a jury trial, so it's post-trial. Uh, it's out of the 4th DCA. Um, in California courts. And here, um, the basic facts are that Mr. Gordon was a roofing contractor and inspector and that someone was considering buying ARC's um, warehouse and he was sent out there, not employed by ARC, he was employed by the buyer to inspect the roof. And? And uh, the, well, he was inspecting the roof, he went up there and he saw certain parts of the roof that looked fine, that other parts of the roof were marked with orange. And um, what does that mean, Brian? What did we learn today about roof inspection? We learned today that if you're ever on a roof and there's orange paint, orange paint means danger, danger. And there was certain part of the roof that was marked with orange paint and he steered clear of that and he was nowhere near the orange paint when part of the roof collapsed and he fell through um, initially dangled for a while, more of the roof collapsed, and then he fell about 15 feet onto a pallet that had been lifted by a fork, a, a um, warehouse um, forklift operator to try to cushion his blow. And then he hit that and bounced off and went 20 more feet and hit his head, ended up getting an $875,000 jury verdict. And the issue in this case was whether or not the court should have instructed on primary assumption of the risk. The court did not. So the issue on appeal, at least one of the issues on appeal was that. So we've got, I think, several issues on appeal here. Let's kind of zip through these and go through um, the most important being the assumption of risk. Yeah, the assumption of risk is a defense to liability uh, where you have a plaintiff that is assumed the risk by engaging in an activity that's that's 
inherently dangerous that they knew was inherently dangerous. It typically comes up in the context of recreational activities, such as engaging in a dangerous sport and then getting injured or, uh, you know, downhill skiing where you, you where you get injured. Um, it, it, that's that's the context that it comes up in. It, it rarely comes up in these professional types of contexts. But however, there's also the professional assumption of risk when kind of like the firefighters rule when you're engaged in an activity that's inherently dangerous. So, um, here, it's important to note, by the way, when you're uh, summarizing the facts here, Brian, that the area that he fell through, there are no facts to indicate that he knew that it was a dangerous area or that that area was weak or he would fall through. So what you look at is the nature of the activity, the risk involved in the activity. You don't look at the reasonableness or unreasonableness of the plaintiff's conduct when you're looking at assumption, uh, primary assumption. What we see here is that not all roofing is an inherently dangerous activity, so that um, the court's able to conclude that on its face, the firefighter's rule doesn't apply. It's not inherently um, dangerous. That secondly, the owner of the warehouse didn't hire him. The buyer hired him. So there's no prevent doctrine really doesn't apply here. That's one of the other arguments that they raise. What's the prevent doctrine? Uh, Prevet doctrine says if you're if you're a contractor hired by uh, or like a subcontractor of a contractor hired by someone that controls your ability to do stuff that you can't have any uh, you can't claim any liability against whoever hired you. Right. So there's no Prevet. There was no um, assumption of the risk evident from this case. The trial court said it's not a dangerous activity on its face. The court of appeal agreed. Um, so that's good to know if you represent roofers in cases. And they said that, uh, you know, as a matter of law, the jury instruction about assumption of the risk was properly denied. So they didn't get that. So then they move on to another issue here, which is an argument that um, that that the the jury determined that the roofer was not negligent himself, uh, contributory comparative negligence, right? Comparative negligence. And it wasn't um, it wasn't. The, the defendant didn't like that. They said the jury should have reached that conclusion, right? Right. And we, we kind of talked about that. Um, he didn't, there's nothing in the record to indicate that he knew or should have known that that part of the roof was, was dangerous. He was it's acting. Worse than that, Sean. It's actually worse than that for the defendant because they didn't mention, the court of appeal was all over him. They didn't mention that their own expert, the defendant's own expert testified that he didn't, that the roofer didn't do anything wrong. And the court cited extensive testimony where it said that he didn't do anything wrong. Their own expert says, well, you know, he did exactly what you're supposed to do. And there was no indication that he did anything wrong. So they had no argument about that whatsoever. Um, and then the final issue, one I kind of like, because this is something we've seen now in a number of appeals following a, a jury trial is that the is plaintiff lawyer misconduct. You know, I guess if all else fails, if you can't win on the law and you can't win on the facts, go after the lawyer. So that, that come up all the time. They attack the lawyers. The closing argument inflamed the jury. It, it, it got the jury worked up, which is, I think, what lawyers are supposed to do. Uh, right. Well, the first. So what they did about that is they said. The plaintiff's lawyer riled the jury up because he talked about one of defendant's employees who seemed indifferent and not caring and almost acting with malice when um, the guy was lying there in pain. And she claimed, you know, that he went up on the roof and they said that's, you know, that was used to inflame the jury. You can't do that. And the court said, 
Well, then you should have objected at the time the argument was made. And then they went on to say, even if you had objected, the court would have given an instruction to the jury that it's just argument and the jury's to look at the evidence and so on and so forth, which is typical. But um, that they said that would have been effective if you if you had objected. So that's part one of plaintiff's lawyer misconduct. Part two is they tried to argue that the plaintiff's lawyer violated the golden rule. Right, which is what would the golden rule for anyone that doesn't know is asking the jury to put themselves into the position of the plaintiff. And, and, and he didn't. What he said was, um, imagine the plaintiff being told the day before the accident, we're going to pay you money to have a horrible accident tomorrow. How much money would that be that the plaintiff would take? That isn't put yourself in the shoes of the plaintiff. So all the arguments were rejected and the jury verdict was affirmed. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, are, were there any other arguments? I think there was one more. There was an argument about personal attacks or something against uh, someone that worked for the defendant and, and the court said that that didn't go far enough. I, it doesn't go far enough. And, you know, these are just throw, to my humble opinion, these are throwaway arguments. Um, I guess, you know, when you've lost the case, you need to throw everything up against the wall. And it goes for both sides. Both sides do that. So the next case we got is Bingener versus the city of Los Angeles and the going and coming rule, um, which I found, I always find the going and coming rule sort of fascinating. Um, and just by way of background, you know, the going and coming rule is a exclusion of liability rule. It's, it's a no liability rule. So the first thing you have to understand about the going and coming rule is that it basically says that an employee driving to and from work is not the employer is not vicariously liable under those circumstances for injury caused by an accident. It's a big principle. It's been around for a while. It's one of the defenses to employers' vicarious liability. But there are exceptions to the going and coming rule, and we're going to talk about some of those in this case. Um, so maybe let's talk about the the um, accident here. Yeah, talk about the facts first. Yeah. Uh, so, so someone by the name of uh, Kim Rushton was an employee for the city of Los Angeles, and they worked at a water treatment facility. And um, they had worked there for a long time, I think a 25-year employee, and they were about 68 years old, and they had a number of chronic health problems, including uh, nerve problems, tremors, occasional seizures. He uh, walked with a walking stick. He took medications. Um, but And... and not he does her health, not his health in any way. And in fact, um, shortly before this accident had happened, uh, he had a fall at work when he bent over while carrying paperwork and was out from December until early February of 2015. And this accident happened um, a couple of weeks after he came back to work. Right. And um, so he was driving to work uh, uh, in a dark morning and he went through a traffic light and someone was stepping into the intersection and he um, struck them and ultimately the uh, the victim died. And uh, later on, it was revealed that one of the, the street lamps was out in the area. Um, and in fact, the uh, DMV restricted or, or um, suspended his license after this happened. 
However, he argues that he that day his ability to drive was not impaired. He felt fine. He felt great. He had been driving. He was okay. Is, was what they were arguing, and right. the defendant, the city, argued they moved for summary judgment and argued that the going and coming rule precludes liability because he was just going and coming to work. So, so the plaintiff came up with for us to talk about the exceptions to the going and coming rule. So the most common exception to the going and coming rule is the um, need for the use of your car in your daily job, right? So if somebody has an obligation, if the employer derives a benefit from the employee having his or her car available because they've got to do things like, for example, use his car uh, to go to other job sites during the day, the, the work might involve both office work and field work, driving employees to and from uh, work sites, Things like that are the generally typical exception to the going and coming. Right. Uh, but here you have the work spawned risk exception to the going and coming rule that says that if the uh, employee create uh, employer creates some kind of a risk um, and as a result of that risk, the employee harms someone, then there's liability for the employer possibly. So the typical way that, that appears is um, if the employer, for example, has a holiday party, serves a lot of alcohol, the employee is more or less required to attend the Hollywood pa- holiday party and then gets in an accident, alcohol-related accident afterwards, um, that would be a typical exception to the going and coming rule, or as Shot referred to it, the work-spawned risk exception. And so um, Shot and I give big points to the plaintiff's lawyer for trying to be creative here. And saying that since it was a work-related accident and they allowed him to come back to work too early, that they were responsible for the work spawned uh, exception rule. Yeah, I think, look, the situation does kind of fall within this work spawned risk uh, exception. Um, I, I think they did a really good job. We got to keep in mind that this is summary judgment. This isn't, it's not a case that was decided after a jury trial. So there's still the possibility here that there's a disputed fact as to what the, um, what the employer, what the city here should, um, knew or should have known about the condition of their employee, the driver that, that killed the, uh, the decedent here. So I give them a lot of points. At first glance, when I read it, I said, yeah, this falls squarely, you know, this isn't the work spawn risk doctrine. This is going and coming rule. But then I kind of thought about it and I said, wait, this is summary judgment. And there's a possibility that a jury could have said, yeah, the city of LA should have known that this guy w- wasn't in the best condition to drive. Yeah, so. I agree with you, Sean. I mean, I think that, you know, when you, whenever you read a court of appeal opinion, the, the winning party always sounds better in the opinion than the losing party. And the thing that bothers me about general going coming rule is unless it's, you know, obvious that there's no exception that would apply, why not let the jury decide for a lot of these situations? You know, I've certainly, we've certainly been burned on a case with the going and coming rule that, you know, still to this day is one of those few cases that haunt and bother me because the decision was just so fundamentally wrong. Um, why not let the jury ultimately decide? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Let's go to our last case today. Um, Riley versus Alameda County Sheriff's Office. This case involves the immunity granted police departments for uh, vehicular pursuit. So the facts here aren't really in dispute. The Alameda County Sheriff's was chasing somebody. 
the bad guy went through an intersection and hit Mr. Riley, who was on a motorcycle, and obviously caused severe injuries. Yeah, and and typically uh, there's no liability for public agencies, but then there's exceptions, like when uh, someone engages in an act of negligence if they if they you know do something when they're driving. Um, but then there's immunity that's granted, or there's a limitation to that liability uh, for peace officers that are engaged in a pursuit. If the agency, and now I'm going to quote from 17004.7 of the uh, vehicle code that says, if the agency adopts and promulgates a written policy on and provides regular and periodic training on an annual basis for vehicular pursuits. So uh, they, they then get immunity for any injuries caused by, I presume, the bad guy who's trying to get away from the cops. And the accident or injuries caused to sort of an absolutely innocent third party like Mr. Riley here. And, you know, this this rule is a statutorily created immunity. And um, as, as Sean mentioned, it has if the police department, the sheriff's department jumps through certain hoops, it is granted this immunity. And I think the most important thing to understand about this up front is that none of it involves the actual conduct at the time of the pursuit. It involves the policy being put in effect before the pursuit. It doesn't matter what they were doing or if they were complying with the policy. There is no analysis as to whether or not they were properly complying with the policy. The, the immunity comes from the adoption and promulgation of a written policy. But something you got to keep in mind, and we've, we've had a case like this in the past, you got to keep in mind, this is for liability arising out of um, vehicles that are being pursued. This isn't if, I believe, if the officer himself strikes the, you know, the, whoever it is, the victim or the plaintiff, it will be a different analysis. But for vehicles being pursued, doesn't matter if the cop was, you know, going 150 miles an hour after this person and encouraging him to effectively go as faster. As long as they have a policy in place that complies with these requirements, then there's immunity. So let's go through those requirements. Right. So the first one is that there there has to be a policy that's properly promulgated within the meaning of the section. In other words, what uh, Mr. Riley argued here is that the department may have had a policy, but it wasn't properly um, submitted to the deputies and the deputies didn't have to sign off on it. And the department was able to establish an evidence that they did conscientiously implement the pursuit policies and then it was disseminated to the officers. And I think it's a very lax rule because there's no really specifics about how it has to be disseminated. Yeah, there's there's in fact, there's case law that says that the policy must require certification by police officers. Um, and this policy didn't require certification, but the court says, well, yeah, it doesn't meet that requirement that it have a certification component to it, but it was certified by whoever did get trained in it. So, and, and I find that kind of, it's a little backwards because why have the rule in place if you're not going to enforce it? Why have that certification requirement if, if, the, if you're not going to enforce it? So, but us, they find that the, the hoops were somehow jumped through for the first element. Right. And then they go really the second has two separate arguments or elements rather um, involving the actual policy. And it has to be a, the first a policy about speed and second, a policy about air support. And so, again, there are factors. They had a policy and the factors are that they take into consideration things such as the seriousness of the 
offense that they're pursuing, the safety of the uh, of the deputies, the speed, weather conditions, road conditions, things like that. And again, this is important to note. They don't say that they have to be following the policy specifically at the time, just that they had a policy. The court so, points to the actual policy here and they you look at all look at all these elements, look at all these factors. The, the the piece of paper lists all of these things on there. So so it's met. The the requirement is met for in terms of controlling the speed. Um second and, Yeah. Uh air support is the next one they look at. The policy must quote determine the role of air support where available, end of quote. And and, and that's it. It's 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 a super shallow requirement. And their policy here says that air support may be utilized and it says that the watch commander may uh closely monitor and uh and uh well, already recommended them on their their um policy or guidelines for for support. Um, so then you get into the following, which is to show compliance with the training requirements. And here the Court of Appeal said we viewed the 2014 training video. They, the Court of Appeal actually viewed the and they said, hey, the deputies were trained. They, they met all the standards. And so immunity applies. And, you know, these are always sad cases. And there's unfortunately, it's one of those in the law where there's just nothing you can do about it. So that's all we got today. Uh, I thought these were all interesting cases. Sean, why don't you tell folks how they can reach us and what we'd like to hear from them? Yeah, you can reach us at kbklawyers.com and we're going to start doing some webinars soon uh, online because everyone's kind of stuck at home um, and we don't know for how long, but we're still working full force. We, we were still out there for our clients and we're, we're available to talk to you about anything you need, whether it's PI cases that we talked about or insurance. And that's a big issue that's coming up now. If you have clients that are coming to you and saying their business are affected by these closures, we're willing to look at policies. We're willing to help advise on that. So uh, keep in touch with us. We'd love to hear your feedback, especially now that you might have some extra time to listen to these. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. So thanks for tuning in.